I don't think people quite realise how much I really did feel like I belonged. Like, I really believed it through and through. I really believed that I had the right to say whatever I, you know, wanted to say, to say what other people could say. At 26, Yasmin Abdelmajid was a thriving example of the model minority in Australia. She was an engineer, recognised as the young Queenslander of the year. She had a hosting gig on the ABC and she had a huge enthusiasm for participating in our culture. So the fact that, like, things crashed so extravagantly and in such a public way and for all to see, ultimately, that was the tragedy. That was the sense of deep betrayal. That was the sense of, like, my world shattering. To be like, oh, I genuinely believed that I was one of you. I was one of us. We were, we were all kind of in this together. But nobody could explain to me, you know, why there were different standards for me. This is a different episode of Scene. Scene is usually a podcast about trailblazers who are ignored by the mainstream but rise to prominence and success anyway. But today we're talking to someone who wasn't invisible. She was, in 2017, the most famous and most hated woman in Australia. It was kicked off by an innocuous post she made on social media and ended up being a free-for-all for racists, misogynists and Islamophobes to direct their fury and venom at one very young, single woman. And for those of us who were there at the time, watching and seeing this person being torn down, threatened, vilified and raged against, literally raged against by drooling, powerful adult men... What we saw was evidence of the precarity of our own positions. We saw the lie in the myth of the model minority. We saw the thin veneer of civilization fall away and the fangs of the powerful revealed. This episode is a story of what we have seen and the woman at the centre of it all who was torn apart and has put herself back together to be seen anew, wholly, on her own terms, scars and all. Just when you're ready, Yasmin. Hi, I'm Yasmin Abdelmajid, a writer, a broadcaster, a recovering engineer and always a social justice advocate. I'm Yumi Steins, and we'll start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we record, whose culture includes feats of engineering and a rich tradition of storytelling, the Camaraygal and Gadigal people and their elders past and present. And language warning, there is swearing ahead. Yasmin's calling in from London. She's got another book out, she's fairly freshly married, and things are looking really bright for Yasmin. But the thing is, things always looked really bright for Yasmin. If we go back in time to her childhood, she's from a family of quite brilliant engineers who had to leave Sudan following the military coup in the 80s. We were different to everybody else, but in my mind that just made us extra special. She's well-liked, extremely bright, gregarious and confident. I was way too enthusiastic for my parents. I would genuinely go up to random people in the park like South Bank and and sort of like sit at their picnic blanket and start eating their food. And my mum would have to sort of run after me and apologise and promise them that she was actually feeding me. I just liked making friends with strangers. And you would have been very charming with your huge smile. Big smile, big afro, really chubby. You know, the rolls, like the rolls on the thighs, that was me, 100%. Did you have a moment when you realised that you were different? I was sort of a a modest dresser from a young age anyway. I didn't own any shorts or anything like that. At after-school care one time, one of the teachers or volunteers or whatever said to me, 
like, it's summer. Like, you have to wear shorts, you know. Aren't you hot in those trousers? And I was like, well, not really. And she was like, no, I want you to go home and, and buy some shorts. This is such a bizarre story, but I remember my mum picking me up that afternoon, being like, mum, teacher said we have to buy some shorts. And we both kind of looked at each other and we're like, where are we going to find shorts? <laughs> like, we had we had no idea. It was just, like, such a bizarre thing for us to have to do. So we like, go to the shops. I think we went to, like, Best and Less or something. And I bought these white shorts and I wore them once because I felt so weird. I was like, oh, my God, my knees are in the air. Like, what is this? <laughs> I love that. I love the the teacher must have been so oblivious to ask Oh, yeah. That. When she just like she was like you're very hot you need to wear some shorts like that's the normal thing to do and I was like oh god you know it was really it was a mission it was a real mission for us to go <laughs> to go secure the shorts clearly that childcare worker in early 2000s Queensland didn't have much of an understanding of the modest dress codes that Sudanese Muslim kids tended to follow positive representations of Muslim children were not very visible in the media at the time so. A couple of years later, when a young hijabi Australian Sudanese kid in suburban Brisbane picked up a book with a girl on the cover that looked like her, that was completely new. What happened when you saw the book? Does my head look big Does in this? Does my head look big in this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I re- distinctly remember the moment. I was in the Sunnybank Hills Shopping Town Library and I had read every single book in that, you know, in the young adult section. Big nerd. And they had this new, and I, I pulled it off the shelf, and it was this the, a picture of this girl in a headscarf looking up, and it's like, you know, does my head look big in this? And I was like, oh my god, what is a hijabi doing on a book? This is unbelievable. And of course, it was Ronda Abdel Fattah's book, and I think it was maybe the first book with a hijabi Muslim protagonist in, you know, written in English in in modern times. You know, it was revolutionary, and I like I ate that book up straight away. I mean, it's iconic, right? You know, it was just a slice of life story. The fact that I can remember that moment where I pulled the book off the shelf and looked at it and was like, what? How is this possible? This is unbelievable. Can we be (laughs) on books? The only other book Yasmin had seen featuring a hijabi main character was Pavana, written by a white Canadian woman about a girl struggling to survive under the Taliban was a book about like an Afghan girl. We had to read that for class in like 2003. There were a few other books around, but like they always kind of had this sort of like faintly exotic kind of cover. It was never just like a normal Muslim girl looking up at you and being like, hey, I'm normal. Like, do you know what I mean? There's not wisps of, of hooker smoke and, and yeah, sitars. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like sort of mist. calligraphy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Like desert dust, you know, a camel maybe. <laughs> I love it. Just somebody situated in a place that you could relate to. Yeah, That yeah, looked yeah, like yeah, you. Yeah, Amazing. <laughs> I asked Yasmin about what it actually means to be seen. I think that in a way the... A desire to be seen is the desire to feel like valued as a human. To not be seen is an incredibly invisibilizing experience. You know, people will do all sorts of things to be seen. They will go to all sorts of violent ends to be seen and recognized and, and have their pain or their existence acknowledged. It's also incredible because the act of seeing another person or another community it doesn't require very much from us, but it has incredible, like, weight. It's so profoundly vital, I think, for 
human dignity, for the sense of people feeling like they belong, for the sense of people feeling like they are understood, for the sense of feeling like a whole human. One of the things that young Yasmin loved with an unyielding passion was cars. It started out as a minor obsession with a heist movie that involved hotted up go-karts and then evolved to fully running the university race car team, studying mechanical engineering and understanding on a fundamental level what the hell goes on under the bonnet of a car. I also didn't have enough money to buy all the tools, so I just made friends with really, you know, with guys with big garages, right? Which is not a euphemism. It's just, like, genuinely guys with big garages where I could, like, go in and, you know, help them change out their gearboxes or, you know, whatever it might be. You know, I want to ask you about staying safe in those male-dominated spaces like a big garage, you know, surrounded by cars and tools and blokes, because this is something that I find prohibitive for people. Like, how will I be safe in that space? How will I conduct myself in a way so as not to attract sexual harassment or physical assaults? What's your answer to that? Is there something about your enthusiasm for the uh, task at hand that kind of makes people forget that you're actually a female? I think, number one, Yumi, it's important for people to remember that I was growing up in Brisbane in the 90s and 2000s. The window of who and what was attractive did not include headscarf-wearing Sudanese women. The guys in my mechanical engineering grade put together a list of, well, they ranked the hotness of all the girls in class, but I didn't make the list. Like, I literally was not even on the list. They were like, well, you don't count. And I was like, I mean, obviously this is a terrible thing because this is really objectifying, but also how could I not make the list, you guys? (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, you know, so that was, and I remember another time one of the guys being like, wow, we just, you know, you're really nice and everything, but we just don't know what to do with all of this, you know? (laughs) And (laughs) so, so like in a way my like wild difference just meant that the guy's you know, I had my own category, right? I didn't even fit the category of like sexually desired object, which, you know, is not a category one wants to be in, but also was kind of useful for like for navigating these environments. Was there a point when you actually did feel like, oh my goodness, I am qualifying as hot and, and feeling seen as somebody sexy? Honestly, you mean only when I left Australia. I'm not surprised by that answer. I genuinely, like in all my time in Australia, never felt genuine. I mean, and maybe it would be different now. I went to the US. I was in Texas. And it was the first time, and this is going to sound really bizarre, but it was the first time I started getting catcalled on a regular basis. And I was like, oh my God, me? No. And I would go up to the guys, and they were all obviously black men, and they would be like, oh, you're Muslim, like, you know how to treat your man, like, just stuff like that. And I'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, like, let's go out. Like, <laughs> my standards were so low, so low. It's so bad. And then when they give you a compliment, you're not sure if they're taking the piss. You're like, Right, what? oh, yeah, 100%. You're like, are, are you sure? Like, I don't even think I've ever told the story, but it's actually hilarious. I was in this shop called Bass Pro Hunt, which is like Bunnings for hunting people. Like, literally, they just sell guns and camouflage. Like, it was, it's a whole situation. I just wanted to see what what people were like. So I walk in, and this guy's like, hot damn, walk by me again. And so I walked by him again. I literally went and walked by him again. Sure, I'll do a twirl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
I can't oh believe you went into a store like that. Did you feel okay? Were you kind of on alert? I think the thing is, I often like have too high a sense of confidence. Like I was just like, oh yeah, this will be fine. I don't necessarily always see myself the way that others see me. I'm like, oh yeah, I belong here. Why not? Before the interview, my producer on this podcast told me that Yas did not want to talk about 2017 and the toxic media storm around a totally uncontroversial Facebook update she posted on Anzac Day, suggesting Australians should also remember the suffering on Manus Island and Nauru in Syria and Palestine. She didn't want to talk about it, not because it was sensitive or upsetting to her, but just that everything that could have been said about it had already been said. But I had been the subject of a media shitstorm myself a couple of years earlier and watching it happen to Yasmin had been extremely triggering to me. Like I felt deeply heartsick for the many months that she was front page news. And so talking to her now, I was getting this picture of this wide open girl, fearless with a gigantic smile and an absolutely swaggering sense of entitlement to spaces that frankly would scare me. And I wanted to ask, but without asking, if being brutally shut down and trolled and threatened and hounded had changed that openness. So you just said that you you know you didn't you didn't sort of see yourself the way others see you or that you just sort of felt like you fitted in. Did that feeling go away, Yasmin? Uh, you mean at any point in particular? Well, yeah, I do mean it at a definite <laughs> point in particular in your history, which I was here for. Know you what know. you could be talking about. I know. I, I'm tiptoeing because I don't want to drag you into your trauma particularly, but no I do worries. think it's writ so large in your life story that yeah. it would be weird to pretend it's not there. No, I mean, I think that's ultimately the the tragedy of my experiences in 2017 was that, like, I don't think people quite realise how much I really did feel like I belonged. Like, I really believed it through and through. I really believed that I had the right to say whatever I, you know, wanted to say, to say what other people could say. So the fact that, like, things crashed so extravagantly and in such a public way and and for all to see, ultimately, that was the tragedy. That was the the sense of deep betrayal. That was the sense of, like, my world shattering, genuinely to be like, oh... I genuinely believed that I was one of you. I was one of us. We were we were all kind of in this together. But nobody could explain to me, you know, why there were different standards for me. And the only explanation, the only reasonable, rational explanation was that because of who I was, I wasn't allowed to kind of to say particular things. And that's the thing that you can't really, you know, I can't unsee that. I can't unfeel that. It was such a shattering of sense of self and of understanding of how the world worked that, you know, putting it, putting it all back together was not something that I felt was possible. Have you put yourself back together? I think so. I mean, I, I feel pretty proud of, you know, of how I've been able to, you know, I, I like moved country to a place where I didn't really know anyone without a job. You know, as my dad constantly reminds me, I'm no longer working in engineering and essentially started again from scratch. Alhamdulillah, you know, I think I think I'm doing a pretty good job and I'm I really like the life that I've been able to build since. And I guess like as well, somebody asked me recently, like, oh, you know, 
can you, you know, what would your life have been like without that experience? And I actually couldn't answer that question because it's such a part of who I am and how I see the world. It's shaped me and my politics and, you know, my friendships and my expectations. It's, it's you know, it's so formative that, I like, I, I couldn't imagine. Like, I would never have left Australia. I'm really grateful to you for saying that. As And as much as I'm loath to talk about myself... Mm, please. ...especially on this podcast, I, I really did feel when I experienced a cancellation that was by no means comparable to to what you went through, but I felt myself changing at a molecular level. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And being radicalised, which I I can, it's a word that is very loaded if you say it. Mm. It's safer for me to say Mm. a word like feeling radicalised, but that thing that you just said about you couldn't unsee Mm. what you saw when you were in that fire of censure and judgment and pile on, I, I completely mm. understand what you mean. It changes you. Oh, yeah. Really in your soul. So you had to leave Australia, which which I also completely endorse yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Because also, do you know how many times I have to, t- like, even my own father, you know what my father's wedding present to me was? A ticket back to Australia. I was like, oh, for crying dad. out loud, Dad. You know, but there's this, I really, quite often people are always like, when are you coming back? When are you coming? I'm like, never. You know, like it's just, you know, and I, I find it really fascinating that people have, people feel a sense of like, if if I came back, it would it would be as if the thing didn't happen or it would be like everything is okay again. You know, and I think mm. that's what people want. Um, and I, I don't want to give that to them. <laughs> that's so interesting. So it would be like forgiveness or the pro- not the prodigal son really so much as saying I accept. Yeah. I accept what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I like, I'm like, if no accountability has been taken, why should I change my course of action? Did anybody in, in, you know, with those big platforms like a Ray Hadley, did any of those people ever apologise? Oh, no. No, no. The only only two people have ever apologised. One was Virginia Trioli. I was in Australia for some sort of event and I walked into the audience and she was sitting in the seat in front of me and she stood up and said to me like, very loudly and publicly, she was like, I'm very sorry that I never said anything at the time. I really, you know, I regret that. And and I just wanted to tell you I'm sorry. And I was like, thank you. I didn't really know what else to do. So I just kept walking. And the other person, interestingly enough, is Rick Morton. So he in particular, he wrote a number of really bad pieces about me. Did he? Yeah, on the front page of The Australian. Like I had a particular bone to pick with Rick because, you know, he implied that I had like implied all sorts of really scary things. He wrote a number of, of damaging pieces. I think he'd sort of said something on Twitter and people on Twitter were like, have you ever actually reached out to her, to Yasmin, in, you know, personally? And so he reached out and said, look, I, you know, I apologize for everything that I did you know I and I can't remember the exact wording but I think on both those you know for both those cases I'm like I'm not here to be the moral arbiter I'm not here to like hold you I accept the apology and you know and release you You know that's all I really want is like an acknowledgement of of the pain that's been caused and to hear that from from those two journalists in particular I think meant something I think beyond that it's 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 just it's really do you know what it is Yumi I've moved on. 
you know? Like, I've built a new life. And I appreciate that, like, the experience that I went through, everybody else has a relationship to that experience. Everyone has their own story about it, which has been a really interesting thing for me to come to terms with as well. I'm not sure if you found the same, but, you know, everyone's got their opinion on it. Everyone has their opinion on what you should have done or what you did or didn't say and blah, 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 blah. But for my own peace of mind, I had to find a way to make the story make sense to me and then keep moving. It's so true. I am appreciative of you agreeing to kind of spend a bit of time in that space because it's tedious and you've, it's repetitive. And I, I know from experience, it doesn't make you feel less stressed about it necessarily. But I did, I did think it was important that we did visit it because it's such a, a kind of a turning point in your life. And as you said, it, it deconstructed you and you had to kind of reconstruct yourself. And I want to know, I mean, and I think this is what I want to celebrate with you. When did that point arrive where you realized that not only were you going to be okay, but you were going to be fucking great? Mm. I think, I mean, the first point probably was when I like made the decision to leave. That was the beginning for me, like that kind of moment where I, because I had come to London to visit for an event and I was telling some people about it and, and sort of talking about how awful the experience was and whatever. And, and somebody said something along the lines of like, what's keeping you there? Like, why are you, why are you staying there? You can leave. You don't actually have to like, just take it. And that was the first moment where I, I was reminded of the fact that I had agency. And I made the decision essentially then and there. And I remember I slept on it and then I called my mom the next day and I was like, I think I'm moving to London. And she was like, I think that'll be a good idea. And then I went back, put in my visa application, waited, and as soon as that came through, I was on a plane. I have to say, as an observer, I remember seeing you post that you got a scholarship to go to Paris. And I was like, oh, yeah. that bitch is succeeding. Oh, my God. I got goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about it. But I was like, Paris? We've got somebody that we rejected as a nation. We cast her out. And then another nation that is way more cultured, way more populous than ours. And they have said, we love you. We're going to throw money at you. Can you see what is happening? Can you see what you threw away, you morons? That was where I felt, oh, she's... They see her, they see her gifts and her offerings and her beauty. Anyway, that's, sorry, that's me talking about me again, but I loved that for you. I mean, getting, getting the residency in Paris was incredible. It was life-changing for my art and for my sense of self, I guess, as, as, as an artist and as a creator and as somebody who wasn't just a former engineer now writing books, but was somebody who was actually engaging in, in artistic work, I guess. I then applied for a whole bunch of residencies in the US. And this year, I attended my first residency in the US. And getting recognition, not like the first time can sometimes be beginner's luck, but getting it a second time. And in the United States, where it's very, very, very competitive, I was like, oh my God, I'm genuinely like, doing the thing. I'm genuinely off my own back. And it's not a story about, it's not a personal memoir. It's not essays about how hectic my life was. I'm writing fiction and that's enough to get me through the door. I don't know. I, I feel like really it's been like 2021, 2022 has been a slow realization that I've actually built a life, a new life, one that is very much my own, one that is not in the shadow of 
you know, of what happened to me in my 20s. Alhamdulillah. And in a way, it's a migrant story too, isn't it? Oh, totally. I feel like when people ask me where I'm from, I'm like, I'm just a migrant. I migrated when I was a kid. I migrated in my 20s. My story is one of movement and one of being in the diaspora and one of constantly changing and reinventing. And actually, that's that's not even just okay. It's more than okay. It's a privilege. And it's an experience that I find so fascinating and invigorating. When you're um, coming in on, at customs and you have to fill in those forms and it says, what's your occupation? What do you write? I've actually now started writing writer. Can you believe it? For years. I had even like, even after I stopped working on the rigs in, you know, 2016, for years, I still would write engineer. But now um, I can't write boss as bitch because that's <laughs> not, uh, there's no guilt for that. Um, but <laughs> so writer it is. Yasmin has published four books so far, including two that were written for kids aged roughly 8 to 12. The central character of these books is the feisty Layla. Tell me about Layla, because I feel like this is a, a way that you're kind of bringing your own experience into and letting it be seen by people who really, really appreciate it, which is young girls, young kids, but in particular, young black and brown girls. Yeah. Oh, Layla. I love Layla, the character. So I've written two novels about Layla. You must be Layla and listen, Layla. And Layla's like, she's a funnier, bolshier version of me. You know, she's like, loves inventing things. Funnier and bolshier? Can it exist? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just, all of my, yeah, it's great. All of the things that I wish I could have done at the age of 13 and 14, Layla's doing. It's such a good vibe. And I've actually really enjoyed writing fiction. I think this is one of the things, even in this, the adult novel that I'm working on, I'm enjoying exploring the world through these characters, you know, in a way that lets my imagination run free, but also is true to a particular experience and world. And so, you know, in the first book, Layla gets a scholarship to a fancy private school, gets into a fight with a racist bully pretty much straight away. The bully turns out to be the chairman's son or whatever. You know, you can kind of see how it's going. But in the end, you know, Layla finds a way to to get through the drama. And then in the second book, actually, which is mostly set in Sudan, you know, she gets involved in the revolution there. You know, not always in the best way either. And that's a kind of part of it. It's been really fun and I'm working with a production company in Australia called Goalpost Pictures who made like the Sapphires and Lucky Leonard back in the day, working with them to bring it to screen. So that's really exciting. For me, the idea of being able to like cast a little Sudanese family is like very exciting. Have have you had feedback from people, but particularly young Sudanese Australian girls about the Layla series? Oh, it's actually like so nice. I... I get like the most adorable emails and, you know, and when I have been, when I have had the chance to take the book out and actually meet the readers and stuff, it's just, it's fantastic. I mean, it's why I write these books. It's because kids say to me, I see myself in this character or Layla's family is like my family or I love that, that Layla loves making things. Parents and, you know, aunts and uncles and teachers also love bringing the book to their classes because quite often... Even though there are some books out there, there aren't that many books with a a Muslim protagonist, a Sudanese protagonist, especially for that age group, especially, yes, the books about the trauma are very, very important and valid, but that's not the only experience. 
of of Sudanese kids or of of young Muslim kids, and so I wanted to to have something that was more slice of life. It's just been amazing. Do you get tagged in Book Week photos? I do. It's adorable. It's adorable. <laughs> okay. It's really, it's too adorable. I'm like, I can't handle all this cuteness. <laughs> ah. it's, I'm interested about how your work, so this production company making an adaptation of, of the Layla books for, for something that's going to happen here in Australia, the books themselves, certain things in your life keep steering your lens, the lens of your focus back to Australia. I, I really, it's it's a, I'm like, this has got to be the last thing, guys. Please <laughs> let me go. <laughs> let go of me. Let go of my leg. You talked about how everybody has a story about their experience of what happened to you. Mm. And, it, and I think that that is one of the things that I just wanted to reflect back at you, which is that when when terrible things happen to you, Sorry, I'm having a moment now. Mm. But it was very frightening for a lot of us to see mm. it happen to you because it was fucked and so unjust and um, it was sickening. Mm. And we want to keep seeing you succeed because that's the message we want to internalise. Mm. You know, that's the joy we want to take from you and um, whether you do it in London or Paris or Sudan or America... Or whether you come back here, it, it's I don't think that's relevant to us, mm. people watching from Australia. I think we're just really, really fucking thrilled for you to be doing amazing things and being loved and liked by people and, you know, having a community and being celebrated and also putting all the good stuff out in the world that you always wanted to do anyway mm. before all that shit. And now after that shit, you've just um, really, really a, a, a beacon. And I see that. So... This show is called Seen. I didn't realise how important it was to see you. Oh, Yumi. The fuckers won't win, eh? We, will, we won't let them. <laughs> I know. They fucking do win. I know. And I think this is, like, I think this is one of the really hard things is that, like, as much as it is about my, you know, individual personal experience... It is something that everyone has a relationship to because it is something that people can see themselves in. And as you know, having been in a similar situation, one of the worst things about it is feeling like nobody is helping, right? Whether people tried or not is also kind of beside the point because it's the sense of feeling completely alone and completely isolated. But the thing that I always say is that we just have to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else, you know? I went through the worst experience. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I survived. And in fact, I have built a life that is full and thriving, alhamdulillah, and I'm doing it on my own terms. And it is possible. It is like, of course it is hard. And and when people ask me these days, like, you know, you know, I get asked, like, what is your advice for young women who want to go into the media and all these sorts of things? Like, I don't know whether to to warn them against it or not, because I also I don't think that people should just walk in afraid. Like, that's that's not what I want for people. Firstly, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Yumi, um, because I think I left and I also left. I left the the bad and the good in some ways. You know, I left the scene of the crime and my home. And it just happened that those things were the same. 
And I think that only very recently am I able to recognize that there is still a lot of love or there is, you know, there is a community that, that my experience resonates with and speaks to, but I didn't turn away, you know, like it's like, yeah, I took my time and I, I had to pull myself back together and rebuild from scratch. But here I am on your podcast, right? Talking about it and 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 writing my own damn story <laughs> and telling it myself the number of people that have wanted to write my story for me. I'm like, no, you don't get that. I will tell my story on my own terms and I will tell it to you straight, you know? A lot of y'all fucked up and fine, but let's make sure it never happens again. That, like, if if my experience does anything, that is what I want it to do, is to remind people we just can't ever have it happen again to anyone and we must protect each other at all costs, I think. And if I can help do that from halfway across the ocean, so be it. Yasmin Abdil Majid, thank you for joining us and we shall continue to watch and see as you do amazing things across oceans and maybe even here once in a while, if you want, but don't feel like you got it. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Seen. I'm your host, Yumi Steins, created by Bernadette Fung-Nam-Wien with Audiocraft in collaboration with SBS. From Audiocraft, this show was produced by Bernadette Fung-Nam-Wien and Cassandra Steef. Our junior producer is Alison Zwang. Sound design and mix is done by Ravi Gupta and executive producer is Kate Montague. The SBS team are Caroline Gates, Joel Supple and Max Gosford. Our podcast artwork is created by EBO Studios. Music is by Yo. Hi, my name is Nabas. I love the Layla books because I think the plot isn't something you would usually find, making it really interesting and fun to read. Um, I like Layla because she is really strong and when she has her mindset to something, her goal is to achieve it no matter what gets in her way. I relate to Layla and I think Layla's a bit like me because she's from Sudan and I'm from Sudan as well. And I think that's really cool because there aren't a lot of Sudanese book characters that I can really look at and be like, oh, wow, she's like me. Um, and a little message to Yasmin. Thank you so much for making a book that me and my sister can relate to. And me and her are definitely waiting for the next book to arrive. Need a few minutes to reset? Great Minds is a podcast from SBS that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.